American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So our first speaker is Professor May Nye, who teaches history at Columbia University, has a history in the labor movement as a worker educator many years back, and um, has gone on to become an extremely distinguished historian. In my book, she is the historian of U.S. immigration. If you haven't read it, you must read her book, um, Impossible Subjects, which is, to my mind, the definitive history of immigration in the 20th century America. The subtitle is, let me, I hope I get it right, The Making of <laughs> illegal, illegal Aliens, right? Or Is that right? Something, Something like that. Something like that. Illegal <laughs> anyway, it's Andre Impossible Subjects. It's a brilliant book. And, um, Oh, really a must-read for anyone interested in this topic. So anyway, she will start us off with a historical perspective on these issues. So take it away, May. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks all uh, for coming this morning. And it's really my great pleasure to be here at this um, uh, centennial uh, meeting. Uh, so our topic is um, labor and immigration policy, right? So um, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk about three moments um, in American history, um, but I want to I want to talk about the first moment by recalling um, uh, a conference I attended in 1992, uh, which was the founding meeting of APALA. APALA is the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, which is one of the it was the last of the so-called minority ethnic uh, caucuses formed uh, within the AFL-CIO, and we had the opening. Um, conference, which I mean, there must have been a thousand people there. It was, it was a huge event, and it, the re opening reception was held in the great lobby of the building of the Fed in Washington on 16th Street. And if any of you have been there, you know that there's one statue in the lobby, and that is Samuel Gompers. And for us, this was a really sweet moment of of a kind of vindication because Gompers as many of you will know, was a champion of Chinese exclusion and, and immigration restriction. And he wrote, um, just to give you an idea of the politics, um, the racial and gender politics of, uh, of the AFL at the time, he wrote in 1902 a book on behalf of the AFL called Meat Versus Rice, American Manhood Against Asiatic Coolism, which shall, which shall Survive. Um, uh, an argument for Chinese exclusion. Um, and so here you have encapsulated, and I think in a really kind of perfect, concise way, um, the, the ideology of labor, labor support for immigration restriction, uh, which was gendered, it was racial, obviously. Um, and it, it kind of, uh, I think, speaks to a tension that continues today, which is the tension between um, at that time, skilled labor, but in general, higher-paid native native labor against what is perceived as a, a pressure of low wages um, from immigrant labor, um, and that continued through the um, 19th century and early 20th century. Um, a lot uh, in part because the AFL represented mostly skilled workers, uh, for the most part, um, who felt most the most uh, transformative kind of pressures, uh, not really from immigrant labor per se, but from changes in uh, the way manufacturing and industry was organized. So with uh, massive de-skilling, 
um, and the a kind of shift of control over the work process from the shop floor to managers and the tailorization of production, all of these things meant a loss of control and a loss of autonomy for skilled workers who had previously in the 19th century enjoyed many of these things. And what people saw then were the masses of immigrants from Europe, Eastern Europe and Southern Europe on the uh, doing the unskilled uh, labor. Um, so uh, as many of you know then, um, in the 1920s when Congress passed uh, the first great restrictions against uh, European immigration, the AFL was a big champion of that and, and, very, and also very much bought into the racialized arguments for restriction in that there was something, it was not just that immigrants worked for less, but that they were somehow racially inclined to a lower standard of, of life, of living and, and of life. Um, and this is something that start, starts with the Chinese, obviously, but also you know, was not limited uh, to Asian workers. Um, the second moment I want to talk about, though, is um, in the 1950s and up through the mid-1960s when the position of organized labor on immigration changed. Um, and that change was perhaps um, formalized uh, in the mid-50s when the AFL and the CIO merged and in their, um, I guess it was in 56, in their uh, platform for the presidential elections, uh, took up the position uh, to reform the National Origins uh, Immigration uh, Act, uh, to repeal the National Origins quotas, which were uh, racist quotas. Um, so why did they do that? Well, I think um, this brings us back to the triangle uh, fire in a way, because it was the children of the triangle generation that were now the members of the big industrial unions um, who had become uh, an important demographic and electoral block in the urban democratic north. Um, and so you had the ranks of labor, especially in the industrial unions, now with the children of these Eastern and Southern European immigrants, and you also had them playing an important role in politics. So by the time that immigration reform became more politically possible in the 1960s, um, the fact that organized labor was on the side of immigration reform you know, was, was an important factor. Now what I want to say about that is um, that we often think back to the 1965 reforms as a kind of golden moment in immigration reform. Right? That was the big immigration law. That, that was the good one, right? as opposed to all the others, which were bad ones. Um, and, uh, and what I want to say is, well, first, it wasn't all good. Um, some of it was good, and some of it was actually quite restrictionist, because it was in 65 that um, numerical quotas were imposed on countries of the Western Hemisphere, where there hadn't been any before. But it was a liberal reform insofar as it repealed the national origin quotas and the Asian, um, uh, the Asian quotas. Um, but... Uh, I think what a lot of our misunderstanding about that bill, and which I think is pertinent to today's situation, um, is that we, we think of that bill as kind of being a triumph of, um, uh, a liberal triumph of the idea of America as a nation of immigrants. And I want to talk a little bit about that, about what's positive about that, and, and what, what, is, what is lost a little bit in, in that explanation of the 65 bill. Um, the nation of immigrants is a, is a kind of trope that actually was invented 
by this generation of second, the second generation of immigrants, the, the, what I call the children of the triangle generation. Um, it was a narrative that they, uh, they invented and that they uh, propagated uh, to great effect um, as a way of arguing for their own inclusion in American society. It is, not, it is only a partial historical truth that America is a nation of immigrants. Right, you know, I mean, some people say, "Well, everybody here who ancestors weren't Native Americans is an immigrant," but that's not really quite true because I don't think enslaved Africans really are best understood as immigrants. Um, and actually, the first Europeans who came weren't really immigrants; they were colonial settlers, right? Which is different than immigrants. But the trope of a nation of immigrants, I think, captured something about um, an inclusive uh, ethos and an inclusive principle. Um, of American society that had not always been practiced, right, but at least in principle had been articulated. Um, and, uh, and I think that what the Eastern and Southern European um, constituencies were arguing for was, in their view, a kind of civil rights movement of their own, right, that their standing in American society, like uh, the quest of African Americans in the civil rights movement, that was going on at the same time um, were for the same kind of inclusive goals. And, um, and I think that the triumph of immigration reform in, um, in the 60s um, was not a simple triumph of this idea, right, which is how we remember it. And I want to I emphasize that because I think if we look at it merely at that level, we, we don't understand what I call the conditions of possibility that came together in the 1960s. And I think if we, only, if, we, if, we, if we understand that, then I think we can understand the politics of immigration reform today better. So what I mean by that is what, what happened um, in the 1960s? Well, first you had, as I said, the maturation of a generation of children of immigrants who were important constituencies in uh, urban politics um, and in the labor movement. Second, you had an expanding economy, right, in which there were more jobs, um, and as well as uh, worries about actual labor shortages and a declining birth rate. Um, third, you had um, immigrants had allies in social movements, notably the African American Civil Rights Movement, um, as well as organized labor by this time. And fourth, you had a political alignment in the Congress um, brought about in 1964. Right, with it was the largest democratic majority in a generation. Um, so you had various factors that came together, and only I think a constellation of those factors allowed um, the legislation to pass. And I and I want to emphasize that because if we think about immigration reform in terms of conditions of and constraints of on possibility, then I think it helps us understand better strategies um, and what might be possible in the short run and in the medium run um, in our own time. So, uh, and and the reason why I say that, uh, contrast it to this um, idea of the nation of immigrants story is I think um, nowadays I think the nation of immigrants um, I have mixed feelings about how it's used in our discourse, I think, um, because I think it elides a lot of uh, what, what actually has existed in American history against immigrants and what immigrants have had to battle against. Um, and it also elides, I think, the role of immigrants themselves in 
in um, social change and in electoral change. Um, so I want to. So the third period I want to talk about is in the 80s, um, as an example of how in this generation um, immigrants have begun to make a difference in labor policies and in immigration legislation. And um, the key bill in the 80s, obviously, was the IRCA, the uh, 1986 law. Um, and uh, at that time, um, the AFL-CIO, I think, was, maybe we can say, confused <laughs> <laughs> about immigration uh, policy. Um, it was slow to, uh, but eventually did support legalization. Um, and it was the ILGWU, who was the union that really stood up for legalizing um, undocumented workers. Um, and also, it was the garment workers who were clear about the dangers of employer sanctions. Right, that by by thinking you're going to punish employers, you really are really only punishing workers. Um, the AFL-CIO supported employer sanctions. Um, uh, and the third major provision of the law that was not enacted, I think, which was the result of labor and civil rights um, uh, unity, was the, the guest worker provision. That was a big part of the fight in 86 that I think a lot of people don't remember because it didn't pass, but that is something that we're going to be confronted with again um, in, in the current legislation. Um, and I think the reasons why labor and, immig and immigrant and civil rights groups opposed the guest worker policy were not, not totally the same. There were different reasons why um, each constituency opposed it. Um, so I think you still have this tension between uh, what labor thinks are its interests in terms of upholding a wage standard and what immigrants think are their interests, which is, has to do with living wages, but also about civil rights and, and their place in a democratic society. So I think those two things um, continue to be in, in some tension, even though um, the labor movement um, in the late 80s and early 90s um, as Ruth has shown in her work, you know, have kind of discovered immigrants as it's the future of, of organized labor today. So um, anyway, so I think that today, so I just want to end with something in the present, if I, if I can. Um, uh, going back to these conditions of possibility, I think it's really striking that um, in uh, the last presidential election that Obama's victory was carved out of states um, previously, you know, won by Bush, uh, that had huge Latino elect electorates. New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, Florida, North Carolina, um, even, uh, uh, and even, I think even Virginia, where I don't think Latino vote was decisive, um, it was a factor. So, um, uh, on the other hand, in Congress today, you know, well, we all know where partisan politics are today. I don't have to go on about that. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, that's another trend, right? And this has to do with the difference in presidential politics and, and, and congressional races. So I, I'm going to leave it to my colleagues to speak more about that. But I do think that, um, in general, why I have optimism, uh, maybe not in this next election cycle, but why I have optimism uh, in general is because um, you know, you can see the, the kind of demographic writing on the wall and the, elector the electoral calculus on the wall. So I think um, just to end, um, I guess the main point I want to make is when, when the debates take place around the question, are immigrants good or bad for us? I think in many ways that's the wrong question. 
um, because immigrants are part of us. And, and as being part of the us, I think, are also a big factor in how um, the labor movement itself changes, how electoral politics change, and ultimately how, how the country changes. Thank you. Thank you, May. Um, just a PS on May's last point. Um, you know, not everybody is aware of this, but after those giant marches in 2006, um, a lot of organizations in the big immigrant rights coalition that emerged from all that, well, that existed before that too, um, turned to helping immigrants who were eligible for naturalization naturalize and in turn help and encourage voter registration and then, of course, voter turnout, which is part of what led to the outcome you just described. And it wasn't just in 2008. Um, in the last election, Harry Reid would not be in the Congress anymore if it had not been for the Latino vote in Nevada. So, And that is, a, you know, going to only continue because um, birth rates are a lot higher among immigrants than they are among people born in this country. So that I think that's a hugely important phenomenon that we should all be paying attention right. to. And but I yeah. say, so I just say one more little thing, just one statistic. 30%, at least 30% of the foreign born in this country are naturalized citizens. 30%. So and another thirty percent or so are eligible or will be soon. So, so it's you know and this is the kind of looming thing. And the Republicans, you know, there was a period when Republicans had some appeal to immigrant voters. Those days are at least for now. Those are gone. They were, Sensenbrenner killed that among others. And um, so they're firmly they're like you know the Jews of this my line is um, Dan knows, of the twenty first century in that they're firmly in the Democratic comment. I mean that could change, but for the time being that's the case. So this is a like one of the few things the Democrats have going for them these days. 